Welcome to the documentary on one from RTE in Ireland. This is a story of endurance and an unforgettable rescue when a balmy summer's evening spin on paddleboards quickly turned into a nightmare for two young women. Narrated by Lorna Siggins, this is Miracle in Galway Bay. It's a year since Galway cousins Sarah Feeney and Ellen Glynn made headlines when they were swept out to sea on paddleboards. I'm Sarah Feeney, I'm 23 and I'm from Galway and one of the paddleboarders I suppose I'm known as now. (laughs) For 15 hours they clung to life by their fingertips and their miraculous rescue captured the attention of the country. I'm Ellen Glynn and I'm 17 and I'm the oldest and I have three younger sisters. And your interests? (laughs) Extreme paddleboarding. Extreme paddleboarding. But what happened on the night that Sarah and Ellen nearly lost their lives? Would yourself and Ellen, you'd be you'd be close. Would you do a lot of stuff like that together? Um, yeah, we would be really close. Like I'm an only child, and the Glens live just around the corner, so I'm kind of in and out of there all the time. And I'd see loads of them, but obviously there's a bit of an age difference. But you know, the Glens are more kind of like younger sisters, nearly. Like I definitely saw loads of her and stuff, but um, not not necessarily in the water. Twenty-three-year-old <laughs> Sarah is an arts graduate of NUI Galway. She swims in the sea, but was new to paddleboarding. No, I'd go out quite often. Her 17-year-old cousin Ellen, who's doing her leaving cert, was already very experienced. We have two boards. We got a second board this summer for my sister, so... And Sarah was thinking of getting one for herself, I think. So we just said we'd go out a few times and she'd see if she was sure she wanted to get one. Stand-up paddleboarding had become a popular escape from the reality of COVID-19. Oh, you have the board, the wet bag, the paddle. They'll all fold up into the same bag and the pump. You can buy an inflatable paddleboard for less than €300. Euro. Down to the beach, we just bring them down in the bag and take maybe 10 minutes to pump them up. And then there's a fin as well in the bottom that we screw on. So just 10 minutes pumping it up and screw on the fin and get out in the water. We'd gone once, I think it was like the week before and it was, yeah, it was lovely. It was really, really nice. And then decided to go again. Wednesday, the 12th of August, 2020. Mainly dry and humid for the rest of the day. Top temperatures of 20 degrees. Ellen was on school holidays, but Sarah was at work in a local health food shop and wasn't finished until 7 p.m. We didn't have a set plan as such, but it was like, oh, I'm finished now. Like, it's a lovely evening. Are you still up for it? And my mom then said that she'd come. Obviously, we didn't think that we were going to need anyone there at all. I'm Helen Feeney. I suppose I'm Sarah's mom. I was like, that's perfect. Sure, I'll go as well. And, you know, two birds at one stone bring the dog and we can kind of um, have our little walk while you're paddling in the water. And um, we went off to Furbo then. Galway Bay is horseshoe in shape. There's land on three sides from Blackhead and Clare on the south, round to Galway to the north, and with the Iron Islands marking the opening into the Atlantic. Furbo is a third of the way along the northern shore, about 12 kilometres from Galway city. Furbo is beautiful as a really soft kind of white sand, and the girls were pumping and I just kind of let Otis on the lead. The girls were laughing and 
the dog was wagging the tail and happy out. So it was like photo moment of just this is this is happy, like this is lovely. Even though the sun had set at ten past nine that evening, it was still bright when Sarah and Ellen set off on their paddle boards at about half past nine. They didn't plan on being out on the water for long and just had their swimming togs and life jackets on. I checked the tides before we went out to make sure that the tide was coming in so that you know we wouldn't risk getting pulled out. And because we'd been out two nights before, we knew what time it was going to get dark at as well. From when we went out in the water, we knew it was about an hour before it got dark, but we were only planning on being out for 15 or 20 minutes. It felt still. There was no sign of any wind from what we could tell. There was people in swimming and stuff, and you're conscious that you don't want to be in the way there, so we kind of went out a little bit past them, and then there were some rocks. I kind of went off then to walk along the beach with the dog, and there was another... The beach is relatively short along the shore um, line where the waves crash, so I kind of turned around the next thing and I was like, they're already a bit further than you'd be kind of comfortable with. 9.45pm. We hadn't realised how far we'd gone out at all and then kind of turned around at one point and realised how far out we'd gone and I was thinking of my mum on the beach and, well, you know, that's probably a little bit alarming to her, so... Probably best that we turn around now, and it was then kind of when we turned around, almost straight away we realised that we couldn't actually get back in. The wind and waves were beginning to push Sarah and Ellen further away from the shore. I don't think it had actually taken that long, do you know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes or something, like it was still bright and everything when we realised that we couldn't get back. Ellen hadn't brought her mobile phone because she'd forgotten to bring her wet bag, which would normally keep the phone dry. We turned around and there was wind blowing in our faces. So we were kind of pushing against the wind and moving a little bit, but not a lot. And we were standing, but, you know, when you're standing on a paddleboard, you kind of act as a sail, so you'll get pushed easily. So we got down on our knees and pushing against the water and the wind. I kind of started realising, like, this isn't good. Like, being in a nightmare and just wanting to wake up. We were getting pulled apart and stuff, so I'd kind of be paddling back over to Sarah. And I just said, you know, I don't really see us getting back. They essentially were, were if you like, on the uh, northeastern side of the bay on that lovely beach. John Leach of Water Safety Ireland knows about the dangers of inflatables on the water. The tidal effect was really minimal because the wind effect overrided, if you like, the tidal effect. So it was a, a northerly breeze and they were obviously on a northerly part of the bay. So, of course, they were swept away from the beach where they launched from. And uh, whilst it would have been very, very sheltered inside on the beach, as they moved away from the shoreline, the wind would have increased and the wave would have increased. The wind was propelling the paddleboards full of air out into Galway Bay. The better board to have is the solid board, which is the more conventional one. And had they been using conventional boards that night, they would have been able to paddle back ashore because the weight of the board would have been able to cut through the, the waves. The next thing, it's just like, they just became hard to spot. Sarah's mum, Helen. Like, I was straining my eyes a little bit at first, but then I was just could not see them, like, no matter how much I strained my eyes, and I was sort of, what, what am I worrying unnecessarily here and because Deirdre and my sister Ellen's mom would have been 
maybe out more regularly with Ellen. I said, sure, look, I'll ring her and see, is this, is this a normal thing that they go out of sight and come back? I'm Deirdre Glynn, Ellen's mom. Helen rang and said that she didn't see them. And I was like, oh no, I you're like, you're just, you know, they're probably there to the left or the right or... So I got into the car and at this stage it wasn't dark. And I was like, I was still so sure that we're going to go back there and see them. You know, I never would have even had a fright with her on a paddleboard. Sarah and Ellen were now maybe just a couple of miles out, but Sarah knew they couldn't be seen. We were kind of screaming at the start and that was scary, realising how loud we were screaming and that nobody could hear us. That kind of made it sink in a little bit how far out we were. We were waving the, the paddles in the air and trying to get attention. Ellen had a buckle they could use to fasten the two boards together. And we tied the boards together and kept paddling. So we were down on our knees, pushing against the wind, and it was like, we're not getting anywhere. There were still people on the beach and in swimming when Ellen's mum, Deirdre, arrived in Furbo. You couldn't see anything out on the on the bay. There was, you, like, you'd imagine you'd see them way off in the distance, like, but you don't. And I was like, oh, God. Like, Helen was saying, who do you, you know, what do you ring? And I was like, you ring the emergencies and ask for the Coast Guard. 10.05pm. Sarah and Ellen were now 35 minutes on the water. I just remember my hands shaking, kind of like, what is the number even? And you're, I rang the number and then it was like, you got through to the Coast Guard and they're like, yeah, hang, keep your phone on you and we'll got your location and they'll do whatever they'd activate, whatever they needed and they'd call me back. This is Valencia Coast Guard Radio, Valencia Coast Guard Radio. The search was coordinated by Valencia Coast Guard who immediately tasked the Galway lifeboat. By 10.25pm, they were making their way to the scene. In the meantime, Sarah's dad, Bernard Tonge, and Ellen's dad, Johnny Glynn, had arrived out at Furbo Beach. So by the time I got out there, it was still, you know, well, lovely and bright, but you could, you could notice that it wasn't the same day that it was earlier. The weather had turned a bit, you know, it was kind of a bit choppy, a bit breezy. It was, and people and family were arriving, and it was very, very quiet, though. It was very sombre, you know, it was just really, really quiet. There was no one panicking, there was no one bawling. It was just really quiet. It was now shortly after 10pm, and the light was fading. And you've got kind of people looking around on the beach and shouting and all that kind of thing, and... You know, it just got a bit kind of, as each minute went by, it got more and more worrying and you, you kind of just, you're hoping everything's going to be fine. I was parked up at the promenade there and I, I kind of, I drove the front wheels up onto the onto the footpath and I had the lights on full beam. That's, I actually did that not long after I arrived because when I realised, well, there's no lights, so if they see the lights, it might just help them to, you know, they'd have to see something. Out at sea, Ellen could see the lights on the shore. It started getting later and it started getting darker and we weren't really saying much out loud. And as soon as the sun went down, it just got really cold. I don't think me or Sarah were kind of out loud worrying, but obviously we're kind of thinking, oh God, this is bad. And I was kind of, you know, getting a little bit stressed. 
and I had a song stuck in my head that kept playing on repeat so I needed to get it out so I just burst into song I think I've seen this film before and I didn't like the ending and Sarah thought I was just I'd say at first she thought I was insane but then she kind of she started singing along it was a distraction you know it blocked us from having the worries at all for a while so that was just before the first boat came it was now 10.30pm and Sarah and Ellen were an hour on the water. These are actual recordings of Coast Guard operations from that night. Yeah, I got a lifeboat call by Coast Guard Radio, go ahead. Go by Coast Guard, this call lifeboat. We are currently at Furrow Beach and we're going to commence our search. Over. My name is uh, Mike Swan. I'm uh, the lifeboat operations manager in Galway Lifeboat Station, which is part of the RNLI. I got the phone call from the Coast Guard to say that there was uh, two pedal boaters overdue and they, they, they kind of asked us to launch. So we belted out and once the lads got on scene, then they kind of did a search kind of area, like a, a box area of, say, Furbo. We must have been out really far because it was, it seemed to be quite far away from us. We'd scream at the top of our lungs any time it went past us. Obviously it couldn't hear us and it went along the coast and I think it went out of our sight. When the Galway lifeboat found nothing, they headed west. Galway Coast Guard, this is Galway lifeboat. Just to let you know, we're driving and searching. We're heading west towards the test site, the middle test site. Over. OK, what's your ETA for there, over? No sign of them there. Then we started to do parallel line search down, say, a north site kind of line, say, from Furbo down to, say, near Blackhead kind of region. It's a complex search at this stage because there are differing scenarios. John Draper is Divisional Controller of Valencia Coast Guard who were directing the search. Had they paddled actively east along the coast or west along the coast in an attempt to get ashore? You know, once darkness came, were they looking at lights on the northern shore or were they attempting to get to the northern shore at some point? So whether that was east or west, or whether it was south of Furbo, we had to factor that in. And then the boat passed us again. Kept going along the coast, but would move out a bit more each time. Around 10.45pm, the Galway lifeboat crew fired a white flare to light up the sea around them. So we thought, you know, now for sure they'll see us. I'd say we were so close to being seen that time. It's just all about searching slowly and methodically. And one thing that you know, people say, well, how come you couldn't see them or how come you couldn't come across them? And for me, I use the analogy that uh, Galway Bay is a big place and then you're looking for two girls and then it's nighttime. If there's a wave at all and in our boat, like if someone is, say, you know, 100 metres away, there's no way in hell you're going to see them, you know, in a wave, you know, two or three feet. You're only going to see them when they're on the top of the wave. And you must remember, too, that when they're on top of the wave, the boat that you're on might be on the bottom of the wave. So it's, it's not as easy as people think. You know, you could have been right beside them and you wouldn't have seen them. As simple as that. And bear in mind, at this time, we didn't know were the two girls still on the board, had they fallen off the board. Your expectancy in the water to survive 
it isn't that great. But whereby you're on a boat or on a craft, you know, you, you know, you're just drifting. You know, if you can survive at all, you, you can survive. You know. The lifeboat crew later found out that Sarah and Ellen were wearing life jackets, but no wetsuits. They were just wearing bikinis kind of thing. So when we heard that, that wasn't not so good news, like, you know. It was now pitch black, but Sarah still wasn't feeling the cold at this stage. I don't know, was it adrenaline or also the water I had felt was particularly warm that evening, um, which obviously was a huge help. Survivability in the water with the conditions at hand. John Draper of Valencia Coast Guard. You'd see temperature there of 18 degrees initially, possibly going down to 17 degrees, and the air temperature was uh, 18 degrees, dropping down to 15 later on through the night. The survival curves for people uh, outside the water in that type of scenario, yeah, it could be in, an in excess of 24 hours looking at the curves. 11 p.m. Sarah and Ellen were now an hour and a half at sea, Still paddling against the wind, they had no food or water. And once it became apparent that there was no confirmed sighting of the paddleboarders, the Coast Guard helicopter 115 and also the Iron Lifeboat were tasked in then for an expanding search of the area. 19 minutes, I think, past 11, the vapours went off. John O'Donnell is a coxswain with the Iron Islands Lifeboat Service. So when I arrived at station, there was four crew coming there at the same time as me. Then I informed them what we were doing. I just briefed them what the story was, where we were going, and I told the mechanic to go down and start the boat straight away. Shortly before 12 o'clock, we arrived on scene. Just before we arrived on scene, Rescue 115 was actually coming in from the east as well, or Valley Wachan, and he went to the north shore, up along the shore. The Castle Bay Coast Guard boat and also the uh, Doolan Coast Guard boats were tasked in shortly after that, uh, in that timeline. So there was like different areas, we were all given locations to search. So we kind of just worked that area then for the next few hours after that, you know, kept on going. Galway Coast Guard Radio, Rescue 105 on 160. Shannon Coast Guard Radio, go ahead. If you know, we're on scene now, um, we're just coming to the bay, we're going to come in searching. We'll keep you updated throughout, just let you know, conditions are very good here at the moment. Uh, some showers on roof, but the conditions of the bay seem pretty good. Just after midnight, Ellen sees the helicopter. It was just like, oh my God, such a commotion. Like, we just caused so much hassle. You know, in our heads, it was like, as soon as the helicopter comes out, the lights will just light up the whole bay and they'll just spot us. Her mum, Deirdre, could also see the helicopter in the distance. Then at one stage, it seemed to be in the one spot for ages. And I was like, oh and it's, I was going, they're definitely there. It was, you know, hovering steadily and then it moved on, you know, another little bit and I was like, oh, no God, so they, they mustn't have been together. But I definitely thought that the helicopter was in that spot so long that one of them was there. I was so sure that, oh, they have them. They definitely have them now. And I was nearly like, oh, somebody video it because, you know, they'll be mortified. Then it moved on and I was like, on because uh, the guards were there that definitely at that stage. And I was like, well, will they have rang you and told you if they have them now? And she was kind of saying, yeah. Rescue 115, call the Coast Guard. SE Info, we're up to normal, uh, nothing to report. SE Info, we did that run up by Spittle there on Furbo. And now we're doing a creepy climb back in towards uh, the bay. Over. 
Ellen and Sarah had no torch, no mobile phone and no emergency flare. The helicopter is equipped with a thermal imaging sensor on board. And in addition to, there's a night sun, a powerful night sun as well. For the search under cover of darkness, the two paddleboarders, unfortunately, they would have offered a low profile for detection. And in particular, you know, by night time with no means of signaling, light signaling, you're talking about light or a flare to attract attention to the resources that were out searching at that time. 1 a.m., Sarah and Ellen were now three and a half hours at sea and being carried further out of Galway Bay, well down towards the Clare coastline at the opposite side. We kept paddling for a long time again, you know, knowing that we weren't getting any closer, but just kind of trying to slow down us being pushed out any further because we didn't really know what direction we'd go in or just thought it would be easier if we stayed in line with the beach. So the whole time we could see the beach, we could see the lights there. The northeast wind was now whipping up the seas and it had started to rain heavily with a storm approaching. 2am in the morning, you were looking at gusting to 28 knots at times. John Draper of Valencia Coast Guard. Your sea conditions would have been anything up to 1.5 metres and at times up to 2 metre seas. Challenging environmental conditions for two paddleboarders to be out in and I'm sure there was a lot of concern there by them at that stage. Meanwhile, back on the beach at Furbo, some people had headed off in either direction to search nearby beaches and piers in case Sarah and Ellen had come ashore. As the weather got worse, Sarah's dad, Bernard, encouraged those who were there to sit into their cars with the headlights on. So eventually then, so we're there for, like, between, from about half nine till about two in the morning, and there was no sign and really nothing we could do. Like, we're just standing on the beach. Sarah's mum, Helen, checked back in with the Coast Guard. So I was like, well, what's the next best step then to where we go? And they were kind of saying, well, you know, the wind, I think, would bring them maybe over clear direction. So we said, there's no point in us standing here. So between the four of us, myself, Helen, uh, John and Deirdre, we said we'd drive down to Clare, be there first light or whatever. So we nipped home, grabbed whatever, probably change of clothes into the car. When Ellen's mum, Deirdre, called home to pick up some things before heading to Clare, she saw a light on in Ellen's room. You know, I went in to turn off the light and like that, no one would go into Ellen's room without, you know, it's un <laughs> an unwritten rule. <laughs> Don't go into Ellen's room. So when I, I remember my grandmother used to, she used to, you know, the way they'd have the old pish rugs or whatever, like she used to say, like, if somebody isn't home when they die, they'll come and knock on the door three times. <laughs> And that's their soul leaving. So that actually went through my head. I went, oh, God. And I was like, no, no, they're fine. It was now roughly 3 a.m. Sarah and her younger cousin Ellen were five and a half hours stranded at sea. When the weather got bad, it was very scary. The wind picked up, the water was a lot choppier, a lot rougher. Heavy rain as well, you know, it was kind of painful almost, the rain and... As the time went on, you know, the fear kind of does start to set in more. It's hard to keep track of time when you don't have any watch or clock or anything with you and you don't know if it's been hours or minutes. I was definitely very conscious anyway that I didn't want to say any of the maybe darker things that were going through my head at the time because obviously I don't want to freak Ellen out and I'm sure it was probably the same for her, like it just wouldn't have been productive for either of us to have been saying anything panic-inducing or... I remember for when we saw the 
shooting stars. 17-year-old Ellen. I'd always wanted to see them. So I thought that was really cool. And then the plankton in the water. They'd been in the water a year before that and I didn't get to see them. I was kind of thinking in my head, like, am I getting to see all this stuff now because I'm going to die? <laughs> so I was kind of thinking that, but I didn't worry about it because I just had to stay thinking positive because, you know, no matter what I thought, we couldn't really change the situation. We were saying, like, you don't really hear stories of people being found. So we were just saying, we're so lucky. You know, we were together and the boards were together and we were in the bay. We have life jackets on and there's people out looking for us. And I can't wait to get my pyjamas on and get into bed and, yeah, just trying to keep an end in sight and stay positive and talk about how it would be when we would get home and, yeah. By 4am, the Irish Coast Guard rescue helicopter 118 from Sligo had arrived to relieve Shannon Rescue 115. In Clare, Deirdre and Johnny and Helen and Bernard were separately working their way along every beach and inlet along the coastline. And the next thing, the whole sky lit up with the lightning. And it was sort of like, what else can you throw at them? And you're going, oh my God, like they're out there in bikinis in the middle of the sea. The thunder and lightning was just like being in a movie. It was just like, the lightning was just scary, but it was like just another thing on top of everything. Nothing we can do about it. Then we saw one of the helicopters go in because of what we assumed was the weather. You know, you don't think then that you, <laughs> the chances aren't too good for you if the helicopter couldn't be out in those conditions, you know, because the size of the helicopter compared to us and all we have is the boards. Rescue 118 had been forced to return to base because of the weather conditions. While the Arran and Galway lifeboats, along with the Costello and Doolan Coast Guard units, were banking on the fact that no debris had been found as they continued their search throughout the night. In the line when the rain was heavy in the time of the tunnel and lightning. John O'Donnell of the Arran Islands lifeboat. If you see about 10 yards, you are very, very lucky. Unless something was within 10 yards of you. And I say even at 10 yards, it's, it's very hard to see something in the water. You're talking about a metre, a metre and a half of kind of a swell there as well, and the way the wind was on top of it. It's very, very hard to pick anything up. 4.30 a.m. and Sarah and Ellen had been on the water for seven hours in horrendous weather with nothing to eat or drink. They were using what little energy they had to keep the cold at bay by paddling desperately. They had no idea where they were, but by this time the wind would have been pushing them towards the mouth of the bay at Blackhead on the Clare coast and out to the wide Atlantic. And we couldn't really see the boats anymore because it was raining so heavily. So I thought that was them calling off the search for the night. So we kind of thought at that point we'd probably have to wait until it got bright. So that was when we stopped paddling. You know, just thought, have to wait it out now overnight and just hope that in the morning we'll be, we'll be spotted. Probably wasn't until we stopped paddling as well and you're kind of lying down on the board then trying to stay as stable as possible and you're moving less 
yeah, definitely started to feel the cold then at that point and yeah, it was very cold. My head was just kind of, I don't know, getting like foggy and it was getting so cold I couldn't really move. And Sarah was kind of trying to get me to play word games so I'd, you know, kind of stay awake and stuff. And she'd be like, you know, name a fruit that starts with the letter E and I'd just be like, elephant. And she'd, you know, get me to keep kicking my legs and stuff so that we could stay, you know, not freeze to death. And I just wouldn't. And I lay on my stomach with one arm under Sarah holding onto the handle on the middle of her board. And my head was half in the water. My head would just be bouncing up and down against the board and the water would be flowing in and out of my mouth and my eyes and everything, but I was just so cold. I couldn't move, I didn't care. Obviously, in terms of their body, they were obviously losing heat the whole time and were becoming hypothermic. John Leach of Water Safety Ireland. The longer it went on, obviously, the wind chill factor was getting stronger. They were getting further out into the bay. I've actually suffered it from myself many, many years ago, uh, diving. You, you actually feel you don't, you don't really care what's happening around you anymore. You lose your focus. Essentially, you lose your will to live. I mean, that's what hypothermia does to you. And had that continued for long enough, regrettably, yes, people do die from hypothermia in our temperate climate. Six a.m. I remember the sky went from like pitch black to a little bit lighter than that at one point, and I said, "Sarah, I think it's getting bright," and she said, "You're probably just adjusting to the darkness." But then it slowly started to get brighter, but we were just surrounded in fog that we couldn't make out anything. We had no idea where we were or anything, and that was a strange one because. Everything had just looked so different to what we had last seen. Like, our last clear view was of Furbo Beach and the lights there in a very kind of familiar setting. And we were just kind of lying there on the boards and the waves were quite big, so we'd just be rocking up and down. I, you know, I didn't think anybody was out looking anymore, and I think for, like, a few seconds I was kind of imagining, you know, all our family at home kind of just trying to do something, but there's obviously, you know, but that there was nothing they could do. But I just put it all out of my head. Sarah and Ellen were now nearly nine hours on the water as their families and friends combed the shoreline north and south of Galway Bay and hundreds of people began responding to appeals for help on sea and land. The Rescue 115 helicopter from Shannon was also back on scene. So we were walking and we met a coast guard Ellen's mum, Deirdre Glynn. You know, I was asking him, what did he think the chances were that they were still on the water or that, you know, they made it somewhere? He didn't want to give me an answer one way or another. Like, he was like, oh, just keep looking and look, you know, go look over past there. So we left that beach and then we went to Throcht, another beach. Again, we were walking and we saw someone coming with the high-vis stuff, and, and I remember thinking, oh, we'll ask him, we'll ask him, he'll know, he'll know. And, say, John was walking near the water and I was walking up to the wall, and it turned out that it was a neighbour, Michal. Michal had come across from Galway to help in the search during the night. We didn't recognise him. 
Like John was upset and I was like going, but sure, there have to be somewhere like it's a bee. Maybe this stage, I think it was half six, I was like, we'll find them, you know, maybe someone will find them or they'll have, people will be getting up now and they'll look out and they'll be at someone's back door or... But it's funny because um, a Taylor Swift song kept going through my head and the line of the song was, I think I've seen this film before and I don't like the ending. And I was like, well, stop it, stop it, get out of my head. And I was going, is this what goes on in people who are traumatised, you know, that their songs in their head are, you know... 7am, after searching every inlet on the Clare coastline, Sarah and Ellen's parents left Clare and headed back to Galway. Visibility was still poor at 8am as Sarah and Ellen continued to drift further and further out of Galway Bay towards the Atlantic. After ten and a half hours at sea, they were exhausted and freezing and had no sense that there were still helicopters, vessels and hundreds of people looking for them over a 500 square kilometre area. That was really scary, realising that, OK, it's been bright now for hours and we haven't seen anyone. Sarah Feeney. I was kind of thinking as well, like, have they just presumed at this point now that we're not coming back? Are they just checking the shorelines or, you know, it was... Hard to imagine as well that we were so far away from where we had gone that we couldn't even see anything that was happening. Still struggling to paddle in rough seas, they were using what little energy they had left to hang on to their paddle boards and their lives. The waves were just huge. Ellen Glynn. They'd just really be rocking the boat up and down and be splashing our faces. You couldn't see ahead of you because all you'd see were, were the waves coming along. Cahal Grunel of Common Shultorita on Spidale or Spiddle Sailing Club was one of those who responded to an appeal for help with the search. When I got here to Unchang Cave, there, were, there was a group, a fair group of people. There was, I'd say, between 40 and 50 people here and um, we were addressed by a member of Ungorda Shiokona and uh, they gave us the um, channel for the VHF and um, they told us to take a line from on Spidale here to Blackhead and search the area east of that, which would be from Spidale into Galway. We launched two ribs, uh, we got uh, uh, additional fuel and um, some sandwiches because we were figuring it will be a long day ahead. My name is Patrick Oliver. Yeah, I'm uh, from Clara in Galway. I'm a commercial fisherman for 20 years, fishing in Galway Bay for all of that time. Patrick, who fishes with his son Morgan, had planned on taking that particular day off. We heard early enough in the morning, all right, that uh, two girls had gone missing in the night. They checked in with the Galway lifeboat station on the position of the search and said they were heading for the outer bay on their catamaran, Johnny O. And we left straight away, left the house and straight to the docks. Patrick brought his credit card. He reckoned with northeasterly winds they could be outside the bay towards the Atlantic and he might need to refuel on the Aran Island of Inishir. If we ran out of fuel ourselves, you're going to have to throw out the anchor and try and wait for someone to come and get you. Like, that's why I was even saying to him on the way out, like, bring more slack, like, more rope for the anchors, you know, if you'd be in deeper water. We'd a good idea, like, we'd be well away from home, you know, that kind of way. As morning wore on, Sarah's mum, Helen, knew she couldn't go to work herself and that Sarah would want her own boss to know. Sarah, I knew, was due to be at work 
And I knew it. she'd kill me if, you know, she, the work weren't informed. Deirdre and Johnny had to tell Ellen's three siblings that their older sister was missing. You know, I told them that they had been swept out to sea and that, you know, there was loads of people looking for them and that we'd say a prayer now to our guardian angels to mind them and we'd get them back and they'd be fine and that they would have a bit of hypothermia and that'd be all that'd be wrong with them. By 10am on the morning of Thursday, August the 13th, the first reports of two women missing in Galway Bay were on the RTE News headlines. A search is underway for two women who went missing while paddleboarding at Furbo Beach, 12 kilometres west of Galway yesterday. There was thunder and lightning in the area overnight, but conditions have improved. At sea, as the fog began to lift, Ellen got a sense of where they were. And then we could see the lighthouse on Inishir and Sarah said, those are the cliffs of Moher. So then that's Inishir and Galway was so far in the distance. Sarah and Ellen on their paddleboards had been carried 27 kilometres southwest of Furbo Beach in Galway. Over 12 hours later, they were now where the Iron Islands meet the Atlantic Ocean. We obviously realised that we'd drifted out of the bay and were headed into... You know, America. <laughs> Will anyone be able to get to us before we kind of go in the direction that we were going, like out that gap in between Claire and Aaron? So we started paddling. Where they eventually ended up was outside of the bay, where the wind took them away on a southwesterly course. John Leach of Water Safety Ireland. The wind obviously went easterly during the night because they got swept out through the south sound, past Blackhead. Uh, once they went past Blackhead, they were in trouble. Visibility was still very poor as the air, sea and land search continued, mainly focused on the inner bay and moving outwards. So it was just kind of a few hours of paddling against the waves, no water. We tried for a while to get into the direction of Inishir and we tried to get into the direction of the Cliffs of Moher even though we wouldn't be able to do anything there just, just so that we weren't out in the middle of the ocean. Saw a helicopter at one point and it was so far away. I just thought, you know, for, there's no way that's people looking for us. I thought, you know, they must be doing something else. After 13 hours lost at sea, we estimate that it was around 10.30am when Sarah and Ellen saw two floats marking crab pots ahead. You know, we thought that they were just kind of floating, but they were tied down. There was some netting at the front of each of the boards and we were able to lift that up and slip them underneath so they were just kind of attached to the boards and we were steady then and stable there we were able to just to take a break from the paddling and hoping to save some energy obviously not knowing how much longer it would go on for now at that stage you know kind of like muscle cramps and really cold and shaky and sore and when you're that cold and that sore it's just you know you'd be afraid if you nod off or fall asleep like at what point does your body kind of just say right enough is enough and zone out or possibly not even wake up. I thought it was around five o'clock in the evening 
And I was like, okay, well, I think we're going to be out here, you know, at least one more night. And Sarah said, I don't think that... She said, I'm not going to last another night. And that was the first time that it even had come into my head that we actually might not be okay because I just had kept thinking, you know, we're going to be fine. And then I lay down and went to sleep again. By 11am, the search pattern had combed the inner bay and was now moving out towards the Aran Islands. John Draper is divisional controller of Valencia Coast Guard. In the latter part of the morning, the search was beginning to focus because that's where the map was showing, that's where the trajectories were showing us. And through a process of elimination, you know, the main focus was in that area. There was multiple false sightings which were investigated with the final sighting being reported by Paddy Crow, who's an ex a uh, ferry boat captain from the islands just after 11 o'clock in the morning. I got a phone call from a person out at the back of the island and uh, they said, I'm calling you because I'm not sure what to do. And they said, I'm out here with a child and uh, I think I see something in the sea. Oh, I said, and what do you think? And he said, I don't know, but she says, when I know that these girls are missing. So I made the call, the 999 call, and... Uh, got through to Valencia. Immediately, the watch officers in Valencia in the coordination centre, they requested that the ferry, the Jack B, do a search south of Inishir and keep a sharp lookout heading over to Doolan, which is what they did. Uh, Rescue 117 then was tasked into the Fowl Sound and south of the Fowl Sound to start searching. On the VHF radio, Patrick Oliver's catamaran, the Johnny O, picked up word of the sighting. Johnny O, Johnny O, are you getting us there on 67? At that point, he and his son Morgan were east of the Aran Islands at the Killapatch, one of several banks in Outer Galway Bay near Inishir. Your information there, lads, we're just at the Killapatch there. Just we, we heard there was a possible sighting. Is it towards Inishir or was that was it nothing? Yeah, Roger, there was a member of the public there in Inishir reported a possible sighting uh, at the, the south side of Foul Sound uh, between Inishir and Inishman. Over. OK, and was that picked up yet? We can head in that direction. Now we're about four miles away. We just wanted to check it out and see. Yeah, negative. Uh, the 107 is in the area, so if uh, you're uh, there, if you could proceed and uh, just give it a look over, that'd be much appreciated. Over. Yeah, that's no problem. We'll head in that direction there now. Roger, thank you. So we just took off as fast as possible. It was now approaching midday and Sarah and Ellen had been on the water for almost 15 hours. We had been in that same spot attached to the boys for a couple of hours, I think, at that point. And Ellen was resting at the time and I was sitting up kind of trying to look around, see if I could see anything. Then I spotted what I thought was a boat, but it was so far away and it was small, so it was hard hard to make out exactly what it was. And also because it was so tired at that point, I was kind of worried, maybe was I nearly imagining it? Like, was there anything there at all? So I didn't say anything to Ellen for a minute. As it got closer then, I realised, no, that's definitely a boat. You know, this is the first sign of anything we've seen now for hours, so we definitely need to get this person's attention. So. I told Ellen and we sat up and we put out the paddles as long as they go, extended them out and started waving them. 
Morgan Oliver was looking out from the stern or the back of the boat. You're in open water, so there's not really much to look at, like, you know, in a sheer. And then, like, the cliffs of Moher be down to your left, like, just, just open sea really is all you're looking at. And then all of a sudden, all I saw was, like, a little black, like, paddle or stick, could, like, maybe a mile and a half ahead. But, you know, you just instincts kick in and you ran for the throttle and went as fast as we could. Sarah and Ellen had been found three kilometres southwest of the Aran Island of Inishir, clinging to floats attached to crab pots set by Aran fisherman Bertie Donoghue. The relief then was amazing, like it was hard to even understand that it was actually happening. They came up beside us and threw a rope onto the boards and they got Ellen on and I got on then after. The two of them were just exhausted, I suppose. They didn't really have much left in them. They definitely, every last bit of energy they had in them, they showed, like, uh, how grateful they were for us to be there, you know, like, getting in the boat and stuff. But you could really see once they got in the boat and they were sitting down, like, the hypothermia was really bad. And they were in shock, I suppose, of what had happened and their family and everything. And I uh, gave them blankets and, like, water and tried to keep the heat in the wheelhouse and stuff. So we just got them to Nishir and onto the helicopter as quick as we could. That was just our main thing. Sarah's parents, Helen and Bernard, were out searching in Carrow when the news came through. The rest then is a blur. I think you, fi you finally hear the words. You're kind of running out. You've run out of road, literally. They're found. They're OK. Like the, the cliché in the movies, you just f sort of fall. <laughs> but there was a nice soft sand dune there to catch my fall. And I think uh, Bert took the phone and he started getting the detail. And I, as I was sort of just, thank you and... Ellen's parents, Deirdre and Johnny, had returned to Furbo Beach. And the next thing, John gets the phone call. You could hear him on the phone crying, saying, they found them, they found them, they're alive. And John was crying and I, I was like going, is it the two of them? And are they OK? Then it was like fireworks went off everywhere. Like just everyone was yahooing and blowing horns and like it was like like a festival or something. It was just so unbelievable. Like we got onto the helicopter and the paramedics were looking after us and we were just like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, whatever. And they said, no, we never get days like this. We were so well looked after, and we went then from the helicopter into the hospital in Galway. 15 hours at sea after drifting 27 kilometres off course, the rescue of two young women from the waters off Galway has been described as a miracle. The rescue of Sarah and Ellen not only made the top of the news that evening, but gave the entire country still gripped with fear over COVID-19 a lift. Back at the docks, RNLI colleagues and supporters were toasting the father and son heroes. Sarah was released from hospital that evening and Ellen was kept in for observation for several days. In the weeks that followed, Sarah returned to work, Ellen returned to school, the Olivers saved another man from the river and were honoured in Galway at a mayoral reception. After the initial euphoria, there was a parliamentary question about the search. An internal review of the incident by the Irish Coast Guard confirmed that Ellen and Sarah were carried 18 nautical miles or 33 kilometres. Among the issues which also emerged in the review was that inflatable paddleboards are not included in the software used in this type of search. The Irish Coast Guard is now conducting trials with inflatable paddleboards to update the search software 
and says it will share the results with international search and rescue colleagues. One year on, Ellen is preparing for her leaving cert. The magnitude of the event only began to hit several months later. I'm, a, I'm more settled with it, definitely. It's just kind of like a memory rather than a nightmare. <laughs> like, thinking back on it now, it's not really like a, a bad thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not thinking, oh, God, whatever, and I don't mind talking about it. Yeah. yeah. And are you able to go back to the water? Are you able to sort of... Uh, yeah, I've been in swimming a good few times. Sarah has also been back swimming in the sea. There's a lot of kind of stages in processing everything that's happened. And then other times you just feel like, oh, no, that wasn't me, that never happened. And it's just kind of trying to find the, the balance and getting back to normal. Ellen's dad, Johnny, knows how close it all was. There's been a lot of tragedies before that and since then and... At the end of 2020, the Olivers lost two close relatives, fishermen Martin and Tom Oliver. We always think about those families who weren't as fortunate as us, um, that they're always in, the, in our minds, always in our minds. Neither Sarah nor Ellen have been back on the paddle boards. They don't feel like heroes, and they and their families often think of the hundreds who turned out to look for them but they also know the true meaning of holding on to hope. Obviously, had we done certain things, that wouldn't have happened at all. If we had had a phone or a personal location device, the whole thing could have been avoided so easily. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was an amazing outcome and we're just so grateful. The documentary on one miracle in Galway Bay was narrated by Lorna Siggins, and produced by Lorna and Sarah Blake. Sound supervision was by John Doyle and Padder Carney. If you wish to join the social media conversation around this doc, simply tweet at rtedocum1, comment on the documentary on one Facebook page, or use the hashtag docum1 on any social media platform. And if you have a story or idea for a documentary or podcast series, please email us, documentaries at rte.ie. Until next time, Thanks for listening.